Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, it's been a very, very long time since we were on air. Uh, you know, I, I figured as the snow uh, melts and we thaw out, uh, the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast would thaw out as well. And, and joining me on our first episode, I believe, of 2015, actually, uh, is uh, Dodgers pitcher, first Dodgers pitcher, Carl Erskine. Carl, thank you again, always, for joining us. Good morning. Us. Good morning, Sam. Nice to speak with you again. Of course, as always. And also on the uh, the show, uh, he is not a stranger to the podcast as well. Uh, it is uh, Clem Levine family friend, Rick Elliott. Rick, how is everything up in Moonstock in Rhode Island? It's it's fine, Sam. Um, it's cold still. And there's uh, tons of snow on the ground, but it's a sunny day in uh, in Woonsocket, so I'm happy and and happy to be on online with Thanks. you folks. Well, happy to have you as well. Now, now Rick has written a manuscript of, of some of his recollections of uh, growing up uh, around Clem and also of of being uh, down at uh, at Ebbets Field and in Brooklyn uh, when he was a, a little kid and. Um, we're going to get into all of that, and we're going to get Carl's perspective on, on not only uh, the book, but his own relationship with Clem. Uh, but before that, uh, you know, we mentioned uh, everything's thawing out. It's obviously March 9th, and spring training is in the air. There's games that uh, Rick and I were actually watching our Mets and Red Sox face each other the other day. Uh, the Mets walked way too many batters, but that's besides the point. Uh, I wanted to talk first uh, to Carl. I wanted to ask uh, um, about some of your recollections of spring training and, and some of the diff- the biggest differences. I know that you're not involved in in, um, in a lot of game, you know, in in spring training currently going on. But but some of your thoughts on on the biggest differences between uh, what what you went through in spring training and what goes on now. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think uh, obviously to me one of the major differences is how training now continues throughout the year for most players uh we just went home at the end of the season say see in the spring there was no uh regimen no uh workout schedule uh now if you had an injury or something maybe but you kind of went on your own all winter or at least three three and a half months and uh and now and we did no weight training there was uh, weight training was taboo for pitchers to develop anything above the waist, there was no. They didn't want any bulk. They didn't want any big muscle buildup, uh, and uh, so it, you just went home at the end of the season, and uh, you were on your own. Uh, now, thank goodness that uh, the knowledge of uh, sports medicine and uh, uh, training guides, uh, how to develop and keep muscle tone, uh, that's uh, a year. I understand it's kind of a year-round. Uh, uh, assignment, uh, not just uh, do it if you want to, but uh, clubs keep their players, uh, especially in climates where you wouldn't have to go inside. You could do it outside. But uh, but I think that's a major difference. We, we They used to turn us loose at the end of the season, see in the spring, that was it. And then that made spring training harder because you had to kind of start from scratch. And uh, you had to be ready to play games um, by March 1st or so, uh, so the pitchers would come in uh, mid mid February, and I think some do come in early anyway. But uh, but th- there's a big difference in the commitment to a year round uh, regimen than in our days. It was a season, an off season. Uh, I don't think these uh, players today have truly an off season. 
Yeah, it doesn't sound like they do. I, I mean, you know, I think uh, going back to my Mets, you look at Matt Harvey coming back from Tommy John surgery, and he, he looked great the other day. Uh, but he is humongous. He's incredibly bulky. And I'm not exactly using him as, as an example when it comes to injuries. Um, but but uh, in, in terms of all these, like, tweaks that happen nowadays, you hear a lot about poles with hamstrings. Uh, oblique is basically the, uh, the trendy injury right now. Uh, uh, do you think that some of these year-round workouts are keeping people too tight, Carl? Oh, well, it would be for me to know uh, technically about that. It's like the pitch count. Is that good or bad? Well, yeah. I think there's two sides of that story, and I think you could overdo anything. But <clears throat> the difference, I believe, Sam, to keep that from being a big problem is there's a way to control uh, how you develop certain muscles. Uh, they didn't have much of that knowledge in my day. <clears throat> I think now that uh, uh, in any sport, uh, football uh, or uh, possibly basketball, uh, there's weight trainers that now understand uh, the delicate difference between <laughs> developing certain muscles and, and not others. I, I think it's down to a real science now. And uh, our best conditioning was to uh, sprint. That was the pitchers, to build up their legs, keep your legs strong, mm-hmm. and throw. It was just a general overall uh, concept. Well, we're way past that now. We, You have techniques uh, and you have educated uh, trainers who've been trained in, in all these uh, delicate uh, decisions about uh, what muscles uh, you're trying to st- uh, steer away from or you want to develop. And, um, of course, the, the weight thing was just pounds in our day. Now it's uh, they can measure the fat content. They can work on it's it's just brought along. You know, baseball is uh, is just a reflection of our culture, mm-hmm. and our whole culture today is uh, tuned more to wellness. Uh, hospital. I used to be on the hospital board for a number of years, and it was always uh, proactive. It was always uh, reactive. You didn't go to the hospital until you were real sick, and the surgery was imminent. Well, now it's uh, it's wellness. It's do it before it happens. Take care of it. Be sure you can protect before it happens. And I think that reflects in baseball training. That's a great point. Uh, that is a very good point. Uh, and, and just a good transition, uh, Rick, um, is, is there any, you know, you, you put all, a lot of recollections together in, in the memoir. Um, is, is there any recollections you have uh, of, of spring training in Plymouth? Well, I'm listening to what Carl is saying, and um, um, I can verify, at least in Clem's case, that when he came home from his Brooklyn season and he went to work with my dad and my dad's company because he was, during his career and long after his career, uh, a general manager with my dad's company, he just, it went from baseball when he came home in October, it was manufacturing jackets. And I, in terms of recollections, I don't remember Clem ever talking about a, an exercise regimen at home. He he would golf until the winds and, and uh, rain got too bad in, in late October. But <laughs> my recollection is exactly what Carl's saying. It was a split. It was a dichotomy. You played ball, and then you came home to your off-season job. That That's my recollection of Clem. And um, Clem had a strong body. He 
he uh, one of the articles I read in Sports Illustrated by Bobby Creamer, he was saying he had the upper body of a blacksmith. But but that was a natural thing for Clem. He he was a well built kid and um, a strong fellow with strong forearms. Um, but I don't have any recollection of him doing anything for strengthening off season. He was uh, hmm. he stepped into a full time job and uh, that's what he did in the off season. So, Carl, you've uh, read the uh, the memoir. What are some of your your thoughts, uh, your initial uh, reactions to to reading uh, some of these 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 uh, you know these recollections of Rick's about uh, your uh, your fellow pitcher Clem Levine? Yeah, of course. I I got a great great thrill out of reading uh, his uh, his own memories because it tied me to a lot of things, including his father. His father, who uh, I met in the early 50s at the ballpark in Boston uh, before the Braves moved to Milwaukee and eventually to Atlanta. Though when I started in the league in 48, the Boston Braves were in Boston. And uh, Charlie Dresson charged the pitchers one day. He said, you bunch of pansies, you got to get, you got to win with one run sometimes. And I was pitching against Spawn that day. And I beat Spawn, <laughs> I beat Spawn one other than 10 innings. By golly, it's, that game ranks up as high as any game I ever pitched because wow. to beat Spawn. But Elliot was uh, setting, his father was sitting in the stands, and he was so impressed with this kid that beat Spawn. That he, he gave me this beautiful, he sent me this beautiful leather flight jacket, and I wore that for years. Well, that was what that's what the business Clem was in was making those beautiful uh, jackets. But that game tied me to so much that Elliot has written about, that um, and, and going back to his father. So the book about Clem uh, really touched me because he and I were about the same age, born in, in 1926. Yeah. Uh, we came up a different way through the minors, but we shared so much the same as pitchers. And in those days, starters relieved and relievers started. So. So it was kind of a mixed bag, and so I relieved some, and Clem started some. Uh, And uh, so we we had a lot in common. And his book, a very sensitive book about uh, Clem and about Clem off the field. And uh, I thought it was a a marvelous work. Uh, uh, Rick, what are some of of the stories that jump out to you about Carl uh, through Clem's eyes? It was... was, um... My impressions, as I remember back on it, <clears throat> my impression is that Clem spoke of a few players much more often than other players. And I remember that, um, that um, not so much in the baseball concept, but Clem would talk about, um, about Carl Erskine and Jackie Robinson and a few of the other ball players on more of a personal level. As a young boy, it's it's hard to to delineate those things and understand exactly what what, what was on Clem's mind. But my recollections of Carl in Clem's conversations were that Carl came up often. Um, Jackie Robinson came up often. Roy Campanella came up often. There were certain Ralph Branca came up often. There were certain players that Clem seemed to feel an affinity with. Um, in looking back now and knowing Clem afterwards for so many decades, <clears throat> Clem was a sensitive man, and he was a compassionate man. And um, and I think Clem uh, empathized and had a feeling for the underdog. 
I know what Clem would talk about, uh, the difficulty of Jackie Robinson getting in the league <clears throat> and breaking that color barrier. And I remember that in that context, he would speak of some of the other players who who were right there with Clem in their support of Robinson. And it was always Carl Erskine. And I remember that it was often Ralph Branca. And I remember stories about him um, talking about Jackie Robinson and the battles that went on, the exclusion of African-Americans, yielding and giving way to the inclusion of African-Americans. So <clears throat> that's my memory of, of the few fellas that Clem would talk about more than the others. You have to remember that uh, I was a, a young boy, um, and they were all heroes to me. But in terms of Clem's conversations, mm-hmm. when they got away from baseball, they included Carl Erskine and Jackie Robinson. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm pulling on my memory, but Branca and Roy Campanella. Um, and um, I met Carl. Carl won't remember because Carl met a million people who were asking for autographs. <laughs> but ironically, Sam, in 1956, I used to go to a lot of the ball games with Clem's son, J.R., and in 56, one magical day, Clem pulled Jr. and me out of the third base seats and said, come on, we're going into the uh, dressing room. And lo and behold, there were all my heroes sitting there. And although Carl Erskine won't remember it, he actually signed a baseball with 10 or 11 of the other fellas for me. And I still have that baseball, Carl, um, proudly displayed okay. in, my, um, in my room. And so this is. Um, I'm, sure Carl. I'm sure it's faded a little like me, but okay. <laughs> it's <laughs> Carl, do you have any like all of, us. of that? I'm, gu- I'm guessing you, you, you know, it, it sounds like uh, it, it's something that definitely happened a lot, where you would you would take some uh, some of the family, friend, children, especially, uh, you know, back to the clubhouse just because it would be, it would be, obviously it was such a thrill for them. Well, there was virtually no security in those days in terms of uh, really security. They had some rules about who you who you brought in the clubhouse, but but basically you could bring friends in and and did. And so it was it's not uncommon to have uh, uh, somebody come in with a couple of children uh, want to meet the players, and um, they they sort of looked the other way if there was a rule, but uh, it was not so much security. So I took my own kids often to. I had two little boys. Uh, that in Brooklyn days they were like uh, uh, five and uh, three or f- six and eight or so. They were, they were still little guys, and but they knew all the players by first name. So my problem when my kids were, they they saw all these superstars on TV for the Yankees mm-hmm. and the Giants. That was their heroes, the guys like <laughs> Snyder and uh, Pee Wee. Guys, they were just guys they knew. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Willie right. Mays and Mantle, my. My kids love those guys. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to, to mention those guys, and I, I think I'm going to digress a little bit just because it's, it's of course, fun. Uh, Carl, let's go to Willie Mays real quick. What are, what are some of your memories and thoughts about Willie Mays? Well, because Willie came in the league, I do believe, in 51. And um, he was one of those phenomenal players that seemed to just uh, play the game like he'd been programmed ahead of time. He, and I always heard that Babe Ruth never threw to the wrong base, or he always had these instincts that were, were perfect for baseball. And I sort of related Willie to that. He'd, he he wasn't experienced. He didn't know a whole lot about runners tagging up and all that, but, but he always made the right throw, and, of course, he was 
uh, he had the tools. Uh, I don't know how many different tools Willie had, but he had five good tools in baseball. <laughs> he could he could beat you in so many different ways. And then Willie and I had never had any personal contacts until after our playing days. And then um, I got to know Willie at some of the baseball functions. Also in the BAT, uh, BAT is uh, Baseball Assistance Team Foundation that uh, is staffed mostly, the board is mostly former players. And it's a foundation to help uh, former players or anybody in the baseball family that falls through the cracks or needs, needs a little help. But Willie and I got acquainted there, and Willie would always say to me, Hey, Kyle, hey, Kyle, we called all your pitches, buddy. We knew what was coming. <laughs> well, I thought, they, I thought that he meant that uh, the Giants had picked up some some little fault that I was giving away my pitches. No, later we found out he was talking about the telescope in center field. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, they were stealing the sign. But Willie used to laugh, say, yeah, Carl, we got all your pitches, buddy. <laughs> but anyway, he was a, he's the player I always answer, the fan mail I get, who was the greatest player you ever saw or played with or against? Well, you can't ask me that fairly because the guys you play with, you know what they do every day. But the guys you play against, you see, you know, many times, in an eight-team league, we played 11 games at home, 11 on the road with the same team. So you played against the same guys over and over and over. So, But I always pick Willie Mays for two reasons. I pick him over Mantle for durability. But all the rest, you couldn't hardly divide Mantle or Mays uh, or Snyder uh, if you wanted to pick a center fielder. So um, I pick Willie uh, as the best all-around player. I usually pick Musial as the best consistent hitter. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Rick, what are some of your thoughts on Willie Mays? Any anything that pops up to mind? Well, again, as a child, um, we remember the iconic moments and the iconic photographs. Um, but as a little boy, I disliked him f- f- and Musial uh, when they would beat my Dodgers. I was uh, I was more than an avid fan. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to tell you how avid I was, but. To me, they were the enemy, and, and yet we knew who the great ball players were. And uh, uh, my memories of of, uh, of Willie Mays were: I wish he were playing right field for us, or something of that nature. Uh, so I had this little mixed emotion <laughs> about Willie Mays. But without doubt, as we grow up and we look back, keeping keeping, it, keeping Duke in keeping Duke in center field, of course. Yeah, of course, and keeping Duke in center field is what I meant. Um, uh, because that would have been un, uh, unacceptable to me as a child. Duke Snyder was sent to <laughs> and, uh, and so that's my thought of, of the opponents. I had no love for them. Uh, as I've grown up a bit, <clears throat> I've gained the enormous respect that they would do. But, um, in fact, I was talking with a friend of mine, Vic Blank, who's an elder gentleman with whom I still work out, and he was he was talking about some of the marvelous catches Willie Mays um, made and um, that are indelibly imprinted in Vic's mind. So he still comes up Willie Mays sixty years later in conversations with my friends and me. Um, but uh, um, of course I, I I didn't know him, but I would watch him more as a dangerous opponent than an admired hero. <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly. Um, uh, you know, through all of this, uh, I've been very lucky to meet a lot of different people, and some of the people that I've met is the uh, New York Giants 
Preservation Society run by Gary Mintz of Long Island, and he does a great job not only uh, connecting with the old New York Giants fans, but also with the actual Giants uh, organization who do a great job, um, you know, the New York connection going. And they understand that their fan base is still ingrained in there, probably because of Willie Mays, more so than the Dodgers, it seems. And and this has come up a lot, uh, probably just because of the way the community felt uh, uh, so offended by by the ousting uh, of the Dodgers. Um, And and Willie Mays kept a lot of people just still invested in the the Giants. But but what's uh, uh, fantastic is that there was the the Giants were touring with their uh, their championship uh, uh, pedigree. Uh, and they, they had a, a day um, where they showed the, the trophy off over at the old New York Palace Hotel, a spectacular-looking building, and Willie Mays was basically, you know, two feet away from me passing through, uh, which was really a thrill, and, and he's he is uh, just an absolute joy to listen speak. He's very, very charming and uh, is, is really, really, you know, fantastic. Um, but I want to go back to what you were saying Carl, about uh, 11 and 11 home and away with all the uh, the teams. Um, you know, obviously the Dodgers and the Giants were, were the number one rivalry uh, when it comes to the city and when it came uh, to that to that uh, that league. But you know, you're playing all these teams every single. Uh, you're playing all these teams so much. It seems as if there was room for rivalry with every single team that that you faced. Well, naturally, uh, we play. Now, you remember, we were all on one-year contracts. So in the back of everybody's mind was their own performance. It had to be because you sat down at the end of the season to decide if you were coming back and if you and what you were going to play for. So the intensity was more of a, uh, un, unspoken but personal pressure that you put on yourself or the club put on you to perform. But playing uh, the great hitters over and over and over again, it got to be a mind game. Uh, there was no secret about what I had, what my stuff was. There was no secret about what Willie Mays seemed to hit the best. Uh, Willie Mays was actually a bad ball hitter. Uh, he didn't have to pick out a good strike. He could hit a ball out of the strike zone, especially away from him. And uh, and on his catches, I had to make this comment. The question he always gets is, what was your greatest catch? And, of course, I heard a comment uh, attributed to Willie where he said, uh, I just catches them, I don't compare them. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but the, but the, uh, the greatest catch uh, that people think he made was the one against Vic Wirtz in the World Series. And Willie uh, never came forward and said, no, no, there was better catches than that. But I saw him make better catches than that. And the one he picked finally in later years here is against the Dodgers in Evans Field, uh, winning run on second base. They pinch hit for me, Bobby Morgan. The score was tied 2-2. And Morgan hit a ball up the gap. It was absolutely extra bases, no question. I, I chalked up the win. I had the win until Willie came out of nowhere and made this headlong dive and with two outs made the catch and rolled on the ground for about five minutes. To, 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 his momentum was so strong. And that cost me a, a game. And uh, so that catch, Willie has said, was his greatest. And it was it was not a game saver because we won it in the 10th inning, but I didn't get to win. 
<laughs> I do remember that catch. That that is spectacular. It, it, it's it's really funny, you know. And I think I think what's gone on with the Giants basically uh, sums up just how you know crazy this game of baseball is. Uh, you know, they're, they they go uh, since 1954. The San Francisco Giants don't win a, a World Championship, and then they win three in five years. Uh, the Dodgers, you know, go 70 years without a Brooklyn Dodger championship. They win in 55, and and they win two years into Los Angeles. I mean, it's just it's it's funny the way all of this works, Rick. It it is, the ebbs and flows. It's Sam, if it's exactly. okay, I wanted it, to just, I wanted I wanted to mention something to Carl, if it's okay, Carl. In one of your communications please, to me, please by, by all means, you talked about in one of the emails I think you sent me. You mentioned that, um, I forget the context, Carl, but you were saying that it was different also because as pitchers, as young pitchers coming up, you did not have the same team of coaches that the the current teams do. You relied more on the elder statesmen of your team. I think you mentioned even Preacher Rowe at one point. If you could just mention that, that must have been a huge difference. Well, I don't uh, understand why baseball historians, at least, uh, if not the broadcasters, uh, make the distinction, although the time has passed uh, plenty now. But I think for about 100 years, baseball's coaching staffs were made up of former players, many of them, but no pitchers. There were no pitchers on the coaching staffs, and I had four pitchers in my major league career. Four I mean, excuse me, I had four pitching coaches in my uh, major league career in 12 seasons. They were all catchers. Now, do you hear that? <laughs> pitching coaches were all catchers. And in only in, until, uh, I think, Jim Turner of the Yankees, who was a former pitcher, was signed on as a coach and became a pitching coach for the Yankees uh, back in the very late 40s, early 50s. And that was, to my recollection, the first time a team had a former pitcher as a pitching coach. Now that transition has come full circle, and now the most important coach on the coaching staff uh, next to the manager is the pitching coach. And uh, that is a major change that no one seems to uh, bring into account on the changes that have happened and how pitching staffs are handled and how the pitch count has come in and how the uh, pitching coach uh, is the one to go to with the manager on who to bring in, who to, how long to stay with the pitcher. Uh, the manager makes the final choice, but he relies heavily on a pitching coach who is a former pitcher. Now, the pitchers on the team, yes, we would uh, warm up and our kid, Joe Becker, for instance, one of my coaches, uh, catcher, uh, Clyde Sukaforth, another one, Bobby Bragan, another one. Uh, they would tell the manager, yeah, his stuff's pretty good today. His fastball's moving. Uh, but uh, he also might say, well, his curveball's lazy. Uh, but he couldn't, the, the coach couldn't come down to the other end uh, of the battery, uh, pitcher catcher. He couldn't go down to the mound and say, look, I notice you're overstriding, uh, or your line, uh, arm has dropped down, or you, uh, some of the techniques of throwing, uh, all the pitching coach could do as a catcher was tell the manager what your stuff looked like but now the pitching coach he knows what it's like he's a pitcher 
He knows what it's like. It's three and two, and the base is loaded. But a, a former catcher could never uh, imagine what's going through a pitcher's head uh, on the other end. Now that's a major change. Uh, at LH, you've uh, you're very insightful to pick that out. And I think you mentioned yeah, that preacher yeah, role. Very, very. Uh... Preacher was a, a he was a clinic to watch. Preacher Rowe was a he could pay the way he paced himself, the selection of his pitches, the uh, the, the he had great control, and uh, they used to say who's pitching today, and somebody uh, can't be say who's pitching, and preacher, oh they could throw the middle of the plate out today. He's not he's not going to use it. <laughs> But he was a he was a clinic to watch, and the young pitchers did uh, go talk to preacher or watch preacher as as their mentor. Carl, uh, were you did you ever have spring training in Cuba? I played a season winter season in Cuba. Uh, I played one my second season in major in uh, my in the minor leagues uh, before I came to the big leagues was a. A full uh, full winter season in Havana, and it helped me immensely because it was uh, cl- probably close to Triple A level baseball in those days. There was a handful of Americans there, mostly Cubans, and uh, there were some great players that no you never heard of because uh, only a few of them made the big leagues. But the guy that might have been the first uh, black skinned player was Sibio Garcia, who was a shortstop on the team I played with, Mr. Ricky had him as one of the finalists, but he was pretty old compared to baseball in those days. Uh, He was in his uh, mid to late 30s, but he was a power hitter and a great shortstop. So, yeah, I played uh, played a whole season, winter season in Havana. Very cool. For some of you, uh, for those that were listening live, uh, we're going to lose the feed, but by all means, check us out in the archives. Um. But yeah, yeah, because I, I was coming across a, a photo of uh, Leo DeRocher in in uh, Havana, Cuba, spring training, and so I was curious as to some of your recollections. Uh, Rick, uh, with since we have uh, just about ten minutes left, I, I will actually uh, like to pass it over to you. Um, if there's uh, whatever else you would like to uh, ask Carl, by all means, go ahead, Rick. Take over. Well, I, the the first question was <clears throat> to go back for a second, Carl. Was it Preacher Rose specifically who was who was the fellow that that the guys went to? Was he the was he the older pitcher that seemed to have the most respect? Well, he was he was in terms of age. He probably was the oldest. Uh, Preacher also was a pitcher who had command of the game. Uh, I always admired Magley, and I always admired Allie Reynolds because those two guys took charge. Now, Preacher did the same in a different manner. He used a different personality. But Preacher would, you'd focus on Preacher in the game, because he was the guy that uh, taunted the hitter, uh, teased the hitter. Uh, Now, Preacher did throw an illegal pitch. He did throw a spitball. But Mm -hmm. he had, he psyched out the other hitters. He, they thought it was going to be thrown on every pitch, and Preacher would just toy with him. Well, that was a great lesson for a young pitcher, to not be uh, on your heels and say, boy, I hope I get this guy out, or I hope I don't throw a bad pitch. Preacher never, 
he never admitted that kind of an image. It was a, here's my pitch, buddy, try to hit it. <laughs> so that was a great lesson. And Preacher didn't necessarily give lessons. He just taught by how he handled himself in the game. And uh, so it was a, Preacher's one of the few guys, he has a record. He came in one time and he, he got the win without making a pitch because he came in with a guy on first and he picked him off was the end of the inning, and the score was tied, and we scored in the bottom of the ninth, and he got the win without throwing one pitch to the batter. I think that Gosh. must be only happened once or twice in, in the history. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's that's very interesting. Well, we've got to get Elias on that one. Carl, can I ask one um, more question, please? I, 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 Carl, when you said yeah, that the Cuban yeah. ball player Silvio, I think you mentioned, um, was one of Ricky's right. finalists. Are you saying that um, that Branch Ricky was considering him as an alternative to bringing up Jackie Robinson at that point in '47? At at one point, uh, Mr. Ricky had a set of finalists. I don't know how many was on the list, but on the final list, I understand, was Sevier Garcia. Now I knew him because I played with him in Cuba, and mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know it at the time. Naturally, this came out in history later. But mm-hmm. he was a—he was not an African American. He was from the islands, and uh, he was a handsome man and a big man for a shortstop. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a well-built man. But as I uh, learned later, many years after I'd played with Jackie, uh, several years, that uh, he was one of the finalists. But uh, he was eliminated along the way. I think they said basically by age. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, but Jackie, of course, I played with nine seasons with Jackie and watched him do the remarkable thing of uh, playing in front of the uh, biggest crowds in, in sports in those days. Baseball was the sport. And that bright light of being a major league player and Jackie's conduct uh, on the field, his restraint uh, and his self-control was remarkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he could hit, he could run, he could throw. But his uh, his ability, his intellect was high. Jackie was smart. And he understood his position was more than making a baseball team or winning a game. It was representing millions of his race. And Jackie could understand that. And that's what put him through to the American public as the right thing to do. Jackie demonstrated he belonged where he was at. And that was an amazing experience to watch that because Jackie was hot-headed. And the major league, or the uh, the team in the uh, old Negro League, players that play with Jackie said he won't make it. He's too hot-headed. Jackie was too, he was self-controlled, and Mr. Ricky was his mentor. They kept him in control. But there was a third factor that I think was overshadowed the other two, was Rachel. Rachel Robinson was a brilliant lady, a wonderful, educated, class person. And she was Jackie's greatest critic. And I knew Mrs. Babe Ruth. And Mrs. Babe Ruth never went anywhere that she couldn't be herself. She had to be Mrs. Babe Ruth's wife. And everybody wanted to know about Babe. Well, Claire Ruth never got to be who she was. Mm-hmm. Not so with Rachel Robinson. Rachel was her old woman and still is. And But she was Jackie's greatest critic as well as his greatest support. And Mr. Ricky, I think, wisely chose Jackie as one of the real reasons was because Rachel would be his support off the field 
where he'd have a lot more hours than he would on the field. Sure. Well, what a good insight, Carl. That's, it's what always, an observation. It's always, yeah, it's always fascinating to, to talk about Jackie, and we do appreciate that. Um, I uh, I wanted to end uh, with, uh, you were talking about the, the illegal spitball. Now, I don't think we've really ever talked too much about steroids uh, with you, Carl, um, but comparing and contrasting eras and all these, these different ways of, of of cheating really uh looking looking back and, and obviously it's been rampant throughout the, uh, the history of baseball you know uh, trying to get an edge uh with something that's considered illegal is not new in baseball um so what what were some of your opinions of not only what, you know the the current happenings and, and what's happened over the last uh, 20 30 years in baseball compared to some of the the ways people would try to get ahead Back back then, back in the day, like pre. Well, you're right. Well, you know, at that level, uh, you you got to be you got to be truthful and recognize reality. Uh, this was competitive stuff. This was the highest level of competition for a player to make it, and that was only part of it. But to stay in the big leagues, you had to take every advantage you could get. Now, I don't encourage cheating. But I knew the guys that uh, fixed bats. They drilled holes in the end to lighten them and put cork in their bats, too. And all that uh, stuff. Guys uh, trying to fix uh, the ball in some way, stuff it to uh, cut it, throw it off balance. Uh, Yeah, that went on. I'm sure that went on way before my era as well. And it's true. The pine tar uh, era came in during my uh, years of baseball. Uh, and uh, guys took advantage of that, uh, putting it on, uh, up on the bat too far. And, and you know that George Brett is. Uh, <laughs> if, if everybody knows history of baseball, you know about the George Brett is. Anyway, uh, yeah, that, it was true that you tried any way that, and and even the ground crews uh, would shape the field. Uh, Evans Field used to have uh, a ground crew that want to know who's pitching tomorrow because after every game, the the, diet, the uh, ground crew would come out and uh, do their work on the field, and that would be around the batter's box, which got tore up during the game, or the pitching mound, which got tore up somewhat during the game. They would rebuild those every day. And if uh, if Newcomb was going to pitch uh, or Drysdale, uh, they liked the long, they had long legs, they liked the long slope on the mound. They'd kind of... They kind of tailor that a little bit toward a longer slope. If I was pitching uh, uh, Colfax uh, or Padres, we threw straight over the top, and we liked a short, uh, kind of a short drop on the mound, not a long slope. Well, they kind of shape it down that way. <laughs> uh, if a guy had a good sinker, uh, they'd let the grass grow a little higher, or they'd wet the field down right in front of home plate, so that uh, not just at Evans Field. Uh, and since down in uh, St. Louis, they had a, the hardest infield in history. But when Jerry Staley, uh, Staley was pitching a sinker baller, uh, they had wet the around home plate in front of home plate. Uh, it was like a marsh out there, <laughs> and he'd hit the ball, <laughs> and it'd take the spin off the ball, and and it'd make an easy ground ball out of it. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, suddenly we couldn't let the air out of the baseball, but. Uh, it was sort of that same concept that happened in New England this past year. 
with the uh, air in the in the football. It, there was a lot of subtle things going on that uh, I've heard about that in basketball as well. We were in high school. I played basketball, and we go play on the road somewhere, and the ball wouldn't bounce up to us. It wouldn't have enough air in it. But yeah, those those are subtleties that you don't hear much about. Now, preacher throwing an illegal pitch uh, was he he psyched people out with that. He had a good uh, sinker. He had a good uh, a good spitball, but. Uh, but he didn't use it every pitch. He'd use it one or two or three times a game. But uh, the hitters thought he was going to throw it every pitch. And uh, he just psyched them out with it. Oh, yeah. that's the, You know, it's, it's everybody's always trying to trying to get ahead, and, and that's just going to be the well, way of the world. And, and even, even as even as they try to, uh, you know, get rid of steroids, obviously there's always going to be somebody who's a step ahead of them. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how everything plays out. Unfortunately, gentlemen, we are out of time. Um, we are we're getting close to the uh, the cutoff time. Uh, but uh, you know, I I'm so very very thankful to have both of you. And, and Rick, it's been such a long time, and I'm glad to have you back on the show. Thank you, Sam and Carl. I I, I can't tell you when I'm when I'm listening to you, and I realize that I'm actually speaking with you. I must admit, I'm a little embarrassed. I'm ten years old again. Um, you bring back those wonderful feelings that I had when I would spend time with Clem, and for that, I thank you. You, you Just um, yeah, being well, in your company here today, um, on a personal note, Carl, you have no idea. I'm such a kid at heart, and uh, thank you for, for everything. And thank you for encouraging me on the book, Carl, and for directing me towards Peter O'Malley, who also loved the book, and I want to thank you for everything, Carl. Oh, well. Well, you know, it works both ways. Uh, at my age, I'm now 88 years old. Uh, this is a dividend for me. This is a dividend for baseball to get to talk about, remember, and uh, also to people who uh, you were there and uh, and your dad. I, I know I inadvertently called you Elliot. <laughs> That's uh, okay. Because uh, I connect you, I connect you so strongly with your with your father, and uh, and to have that connection with Clem, who was one of my close friends. Incidentally, Jackie often mentioned the guys that he thought were really with him, and he always mentioned Clem. He mentioned me, and he mentioned Branca. It's interesting that those are three mm. of the names that came out here today mm. about supporting Jackie, and it was true. Uh, Clem was very close to Jackie and uh, sympathized, uh, empathized, and supported him uh, in numerous ways, as as I did and as, as did uh, several of the players. Uh, we never had any problem in the clubhouse with uh, Jackie being the first black. That, that did not mm. exist. So, mm. But Clem was one of the leaders in that uh, regard. That's wonderful. Sam, thank you for having me. Always appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. And, and thank you, as always, Carl. And, and we will certainly uh, be talking again in the near future. You bet. Best, uh, thank best you for everything, back. Carl and absolutely. Sam. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Carl. And thanks to all our listeners out there. It's always a pleasure to have you on board, and I'm glad to be back. We're going to keep this going and try to get into a nice pattern every week, especially as the baseball season comes up. So uh, thanks, everybody. Have a great one, and take care.